Here we are, 2 Samuel 8 through 10, Holy Week. I tried to tie it to Jesus so everybody wouldn't fall into despair. Um, recently, my book club read the book Wonder. I don't know if you guys have read that. It was just made into a movie with Julia Roberts and Owen. Is his name Owen? Yeah. Anyhow, um, and one of the characters in that book was reading War and Peace. And I thought, whoo, I've read Anna Karenina, but I have never read War and Peace. I think I will try to read War and Peace. And I had tried it before and made it to about 3% on my Kindle, right? Because that book is too heavy to hold in paper. So books like that are great for Kindle. Um, and I thought, well, I will give it another try. But it was such a slog. And it was so long that I would read and read and read and read. And then, like, only after about 20 swipes, the Kindle would go up 1%. And I just felt despair. And um, I was hoping for something like Anna Karenina, which is quite exciting for at least 75% of it. It's quite juicy, right? She's having an affair. Um, so I was hoping for something like that. And it's not like I mind war books. I loved The Killer Angels. I, I read a lot of World War II stuff. So anyways, but I had visions. I said, okay, maybe it'll be like, like the Audrey Hepburn movie version, right? I was picturing lots of this. Like, you know, oh, period costumes and Audrey dancing around and, and that kind of thing. So I was hoping the book would be lots of Audrey Hepburn scenes and with some exciting battles in between. But it wasn't, right? Um, all the war bits were like, were like this. They were super boring, right? It was the officers hanging around. I couldn't keep all the officers straight. And there was a cast of characters, but since I had a Kindle book, it's a pain to look back at the cast of characters, so you don't, right? So you're just like, who is this guy again, what? And then, um, so I got everybody mixed up. I was super bored. And then when the peace bits got boring, because there was no Audrey in them, I knew I was doomed. So this time, I only made it to 35%. And that took me like forever of dogged reading, 35%. And there might even have been a little bit of skimming involved in that. <laughs> so anyways, I have all of that to say, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on 2 Samuel chapter 8 because I feel like it's like the war bits of War and Peace. What a boring chapter. Um, it's bo not only is it boring, but it won't change your life. So we're not going <laughs> to so to summarize, if you didn't read it, you know, it means you missed a good nap. Um, David, he kicks the Philistines around some more. He defeats Moab, with whom he's had this kind of love-hate relationship. He, there's a, a sort of a, a PETA outrage act where he hamstrings all these horses to make sure the other army can't use all their horses. Um, he accepts some tribute from some other people. Then he kicks around some Edomites. And then he sets up administration of his government, right? So boring. Um, so just one note, really, on chapter 8. Um, as Kristen discussed last week when she was talking about the different covenants in the Bible, God's covenant with David is kind of stage one of an eternal plan that reaches fulfillment in stage two, in Jesus, right? So I thought more interesting than what David is actually doing in this case is looking for the elements in his story that prefigure Jesus, that point to Jesus. And there are, in fact, a couple elements in chapter 8. The problem is you probably fell asleep before you got to them. So we will read them. Oh, no, we won't. Oh, I'll read them. Okay. 
So this is starting in chapter, uh, sorry, sorry, starting in verse 15. So don't blink, you might miss the prefiguration. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And Joab, the son who, if you remember, is David, what, cousin? Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahito, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Okay, that was the exciting bit I wanted to read to you. Because there was actually something hidden in there. And so, I don't know if you can read this, if the print is too small. So David assigns these, these Cherethites and these Pelethites as palace guards. And this is actually a prefiguration, right? The Cherethites and the Pelethites were not Israelites. They were foreigners. So in his very intimate palace guard protecting his person, he has brought foreigners, right? And this is a prefiguration of Jesus opening the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, right? Not just for the Israelites, but opening the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. Um, and it's only after Jesus' work on the cross that his followers learn that, oh, that wasn't just done for us, the people of Israel. It was also done for believing Gentiles, right? And Jesus foreshadowed this act, as Scott mentioned this Sunday, when he went in and he cleared the temple court of the money changers. And the reason he did that was because they were clogging up the court of the Gentiles, the only place where foreigners could come and worship the one true God, right? So Jesus was like, you know what? No, my kingdom is greater than you're picturing. Get out of the way of these people because they are also going to be part of the kingdom, right? So he was removing obstacles to worship, not only for the children of Israel, but also for the other nations. So when David is starting to open these boundaries, right, and build these bridges with other people, He's doing something that is pointing to Jesus. Second thing is um, David giving his son priestly duties. Um, they're kind of supplemental priests because David is not of the line of the Levites, right? His sons, remember Saul? Saul got in trouble for trying to do priestly things, remember? Samuel got all, excuse me, what are you doing? I told you I was coming, even though Samuel took his sweet time, right? And poor Saul panicking, he just kind of did something he wasn't supposed to do. But David just goes ahead and does it, right? He plop, puts his son, some of his sons there, and as we will see, his sons are not very amazing men. Um, so they were not of the Levitical priesthood. And that was a foreshadowing of the priesthood of all believers, which is a doctrine for us, right, the followers of Jesus, based on a few passages. And I did not make a slide of this. I was looking this morning and... You know how that goes, this morning panic. It's like, oh, I didn't make a slide for that. So let me read you the passages. Um, one is in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And you know how if you're just going about your business, but then you hear somebody say your name, you perk up? So you should perk up now, because these verses are all saying your name. Okay? Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, they're singing to Jesus, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests 
to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Somebody said your name, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, that means, and no matter what tribe, tongue, nation, or people you are from, you have been made part of God's kingdom and one of his priests on this earth. Amazing, right? In case you were wondering who you are this morning, that's who you are. That's in your job description. Okay. Uh, second verse is 1 Peter 2, 5. And Peter says, Come to him, Jesus, of course. Come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight, chosen and precious. And like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's us again, right? We are this holy priesthood in Jesus. And then the final verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4. This is how one, oh, sorry, verse 4, what? What's that extra period? Okay, whatever. Chapter 4, right? Um, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Right? This is who we are as followers of Jesus. We are servants of him, but we are also stewards of the mysteries that have been revealed. Right, that, that covenant fulfillment that was hidden for so long has been revealed, and we are stewards of that. Okay, so because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we were all made acceptable to come into God's presence. Um, if you remember, the, even the Levitical priests, they would have to do these purification ceremonies before they could go into the Holy of Holies and that kind of thing. And um, there were all sorts of dangers, dangers, right? But because of Jesus, we have been purified and we can enter into God's presence. Okay, those were the two little tidbits that you may have missed in chapter 8. Okay, onward to chapter 9. And it's very interesting. The chunk beginning here in chapter 9 and ending really at the end of this year, when we stop in 1 Kings chapter 2 or so, is a very long and intimate look at David's family and David's reign. And you know, remember how we complained earlier in 1 Samuel? Sometimes everyone is like, oh, I love you, David. Oh, David, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, right? And if not for the Psalms, we wouldn't have any idea what David is thinking or how he feels about these things. But suddenly, when we switch to this chunk, um, we are going to know how David feels about a lot of things. He's going to talk about it. He's going to show more emotion. And part of this is just, you know, as um, we were watching the... Here we go on a tangent. Um, we, we were watching the Winter Olympics. And if you watched uh, Sean White in the half-pipe snowboarding, um, remember he burst into tears at the end? If you remember when he was a young whippersnapper kid, there was no bursting into tears, right? When you would... And... and you know, Jackson, of course, was like, what is he, why is he crying, right? <laughs> and Scott says, as you get older, you get more tender, right? He, things mean more. You actually realize, you know, when you're a kid, half of it is dumb luck, right? And your body's young and doesn't, like, break down on you. But as you get older, you realize these things are actually precious, and they're gifts, and they're somewhat miraculous, and they're where you burst into tears, right? So I think part of what we'll see in David is a lot more bursting into tears, and part of it is just life beats you down and you become a little more tender. I mean, that's actually the hope, right? You either become more bitter and hardened or you become more tender. And ladies, the goal is more tender. The goal is more tender, not bitter and hardened. So, um, so David is going to become a lot more tender. Anyhow, 
that was the tangent. So we have this long passage from now, no more chapters like chapter eight. We're gonna get a real insider's look, right? And so the question has often been asked, how were these things known? Because there's such an insider view, right? Um, how did anyone know? Anybody can look up battle data and that kind of thing, right? And so there have been a couple candidates put forward for who was the fly on the wall for these stories, right? Um, one is, somebody said, well, maybe Abiathar, if you remember him. Remember when um, all those priests got slaughtered, basically, by Saul in 1 Samuel 22, and there was the one guy who escaped, and David said, oh, come hang out with me. That was Abiathar. So it could have been Abiathar, right, insider, from pretty early on. Or some people said, no, we think it's Ahamaz who will show up in uh, chapter 18 because there is a, an eyewitness account of how David's son Absalom dies. So they're like, wouldn't it have to be someone who was right there? I mean, it could have been both of them, right? They could have collaborated. Um, anyways, so the stories we're going to read, they, they are insiders' views and they have not been sanitized for posterity or, or altogether left out. If you read the David stories in Chronicles, those are sanitized versions. Um, there is no Bathsheba. There is no David and Bathsheba in Chronicles, right? Things are skated over, right? It's, Chronicles is the, the glory view of David's reign. But we don't get that. We, we are going to get the nitty-gritty, dirty view. And that's always more exciting, I think. Um, so anyway, that's why we didn't choose to do Chronicles this year. Sometimes we mention it, but Chronicles is all sanitized. We don't want sanitized. We want the dirt, right? Now, if someone were going to write an unsanitized version of your family history or my family history, there would be highs and lows, right? There would be things to brag about and things to be deeply ashamed of. Um, there would be events and circumstances and personalities that shaped our stories and our family cultures. Um, this is exactly what we're going to find in these coming chapters. So rather than be discouraged by any stories we hear, because David's got some highs and lows, right? Um, we should be comforted. You should be comforted to find like, oh, David had highs and lows. It's okay for my family to have highs and lows, right? And I betcha your family's lows aren't probably as low. So that's always encouraging. I was saying I used to watch Super Nanny when my kids were little because it made me feel better. I was like, oh, I'm not doing quite as badly as I feel like I'm doing, right? Um, they don't have super nanny for teenagers. I, I would find that comforting as well. But anyway, okay, so folks are folks, and that should be comforting to us. Um, it seems like every family I've ever heard of has someone who was in prison, right? You just think about your family. Can you name anyone who was in prison? Um, someone who was an alcoholic, every family's got one, right? Someone with mental illness, lots of mental illness in families. This is amazing. Some uncle who was a molester, right? Doesn't every family seem to like watch out for uncle so-and-so? Okay, just make sure there's always somebody with you when uncle so-and-so is around. Oh my gosh, right? Every family's got one. Um, someone who got pregnant and wasn't married, every family's got that. Someone who got somebody pregnant and, you know, the on boy's side. Someone whose kids were out of control. Someone who abandoned his family. Someone who might have had shady criminal dealings, right? Someone who gambled, and so on, and so on, and so on, right? I hope 
your family checks some of those boxes. Otherwise, maybe it's just the Dudleys in my family and I. So, but I'm guessing your family probably checks some of those boxes. We are human, and we do human things, and so we all need a savior, and that is the story. Okay, but the first personal story we're going to look at is a nice one, right? And Scott preached on it a couple weeks ago. It's the story of Mephibosheth. So here's our little House of Saul family tree again. And I put a big yellow oval around Mephibosheth. So remember, Jonathan's like, oh, I love Jonathan, or Jonathan and David. I love Jonathan, you know, I'm going to be eternally loyal to you. So now Jonathan is dead, and there are other members of Saul's family still alive, and we're going to hear about them later, and it's not going to be as nice of a story. Um, but David finally has this moment to rest after chapter 8, after beating up on all kinds of more people. And he, he looks about him and he says, oh yeah, I remember back in the day I had this best, best, best friend, Jonathan. Is there anyone I can still show kindness to? And they say, oh, well, you know, he's still got one son out there. Um, and if you remember, Mephibosheth, when the family was trying to escape from war and danger and all the stuff, um, his nurse dropped him, and that's how he came to be crippled in his feet. And um, we read about that earlier. So Mephibosheth. And it occurs to me, I thought, well, you could have been nice to my guess, Jonathan's, Jonathan's sister. I mean, she's still there. You could have been a little nicer to her, but that didn't seem to have occurred to him. Okay. So in chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, I think I actually made a slide. I did. Verses 6 through 8. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and did obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, your servant. And David said to him, Don't be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he did obeisance, bowed low, right, and said, What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? Okay. David says, Not only am I not killing you, but you get room and board for life. Right? Woohoo! Room and board for life. And then going on in chapter in verse 9. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's son. And you and your son and your servant shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's son may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son himself, whose name was Micah, back on family tree. And all who dwelt in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and did we mention he was lame in both his feet? Yes, we did mention that. Okay. So, not only ruin board for life, but family property restored. Family property restored. Um, you know, Scott and I both love English history, and it's always happening. You know, whoever's king, he always takes care of his former enemies, takes, confiscates all their land and stuff, and gives it to his favorite people. Then the next person becomes king or queen, and they take it all back and give it to their favorite people, right? So this is what we have here. Um, Mephibosheth had lost all his land. Dad had been defeated. 
And, but David graciously says, I'm giving it back to you, all your land. Um, I had a high school English teacher, Ms. Calazzoli, and during World War II, her family was interned. And so they you know, were taken off their family property in kind of Santa Fe, Santa Clara area, and sent off to some camp. And then um, years later, so her family, before they had to go, they buried the family valuables in the backyard, right? But when they came back after the war, and it took a while to get lives back together, you know, the property was gone. It had been sold. It was somebody, it was somebody else's house, right? And then they're like, oh, you can't exactly say, do you mind if I go dig up, dig up your backyard? Right? You left something there. So then they're like, oh, what do we do? And then that property got sold. So they thought, now's our chance. But the next thing that happened was um, Valley Fair Mall was built. So, ta-da! So somewhere, and this is the old Valley Fair Mall, if you've ever, because I grew up near there, so um, now it's this giant Westlake Valley Fair shopping center. Anyways, somewhere underneath that parking lot, ladies, is family treasure, just so you know. So, you know, and year, decades later, the U.S. government made reparations to a lot of the families and said, we know you lost property and all sorts of things. Um, but, but some things that are lost are lost forever, right? The Kawazoe family treasures, they're under that mall somewhere, and maybe one day archaeologists will find it, right? Some things are lost forever. So in the case of Saul's property, it had reverted to the crown, and David gives it to Mephibosheth, right? So Mephibosheth is expecting possible death or imprisonment, um, but he receives instead special treatment and wealth and his geographical heritage returned to him. Um, but he will never be a king, right? Some things that are lost are lost forever. I can give you all this stuff, but you will never be king, right? Um, and as you know by now, there are always nuances in David's actions. Uh, remember how when he was hiding from Saul, all the people who didn't like Saul would gravitate toward David? Right? This is always what happens in a monarchy. Right? People who don't like the monarch hang out with the heir. Right? And so by keeping Mephibosheth close, David is also kind of keeping an eye on him. Right? Keeping an eye on him. Just like Queen Elizabeth I, she took her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, and was like, no, I'm going to put you under house arrest in this really nice castle. And it's like, room and board, right? You'll be taken care of. But I've also got my eye on you, right? I want to see what's going on, and I want to keep an eye on who's communicating with you. Okay, the other fly in the ointment in this story is Ziba, Saul's servant. Um, David tells Ziba and his sons, 15 sons and 20 servants, you know, just like you served Saul, now you're going to serve Mephibosheth. And Ziba obeys. But we're going to see Ziba again in chapter 16. And so we're going to find out that maybe Ziba's heart was not in it, right? It's one thing for the king to say, oh, all you guys, you used to serve his dad, now you serve him, right? And they probably thought, hey, we're free, and, you know, we're our own people now. Ugh, now we got to serve, you know, this guy. Why? So we're going to come back to Ziba. He's a little suspect, but, you know, he says the right things here. Okay, so he's the other fly in the ointment. But back to David's kindness. Right? Room and board for life. Your family property restored. Your father's old royal servants are going to wait on you. And then we find in chapter 9 another, in this story, another prefiguration of the Christ story. Right? He receives and restores Mephibosheth. Right? Just as Jesus 
came to restore us. So we are actually the Mephibosheth in this story, right? Like David, we are befriended and loved and rescued by someone. Paul, the Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death, right? Everyone has sinned, everyone dies. That is what happens to everybody and kind of, as Paul is implying, what you deserve, right? But when Jesus comes, he didn't deal out what we had earned. He didn't deal out, oh, you've earned yourself death, here's death, right? Oh, you too, death, oh, sorry, too bad, right? He didn't come and give that out. Um, Jesus, with his own death, paid what we owed and restored us to what we could not get back for ourselves, right? Because of what Jesus did for us, we are restored as children of God and as heirs to the kingdom. David provides Mephibosheth a place at the king's table, just as Jesus brings us into the presence of God, like in those verses I read to you earlier, right? What Jesus did is, he said, no, I, you're not actually going to die. You're going to come into the presence of God because I am going to rescue and restore you. David restores Mephibosheth's inheritance just as Jesus restored us to the people we were created to be before we messed things up, right? John says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, right? Amazing. Mephibosheth did not, you know, he expected possibly beheading or being thrown in prison, right? And instead, come spend the rest of your life sitting with me, and we'll talk every single day, and we'll eat great king's food. Good stuff, and you'll be a rich man again. We did not expect that, but we are the Mephibosheth in this story. So what do we owe our Savior in return? Jonathan and David, when they swore their vows to each other, they swore eternal, cross-generational loyalty and kindness. And David fulfills that here. And Jesus asks the same sort of thing of us. He says, will you participate in this eternal, cross-generational loyalty? Will you care for the poor and unfortunate? Will you love the people who might naturally be your enemies? Because he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Meaning, just as David looked at Mephibosheth and said, for Jonathan's sake, I will do all these things and more. Jesus says, look at the least of these and see me when you do it, right? Show that eternal cross-generational loyalty because you see me. You know, you, you may think, that person, right? Knuckle down and say, I am going to decide this person. Jesus, I do this for you, right? I do this for you. Um, so where Mephibosheth expected retribution, he received kindness. Uh, let's see. And then we don't want to be Ziba in this story, right? Um, how will we repay the Savior who is kind to us? We don't want to resist and resent our rescuer. We want to be grateful people, right? Ziba's reaction was resentment. Like, ah. You know, why him? What? I deserve him? And later he's going to double-cross Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth's response, as far as we can tell, is gratitude, right? Is gratitude. Like, oh, I'm not going to die. Yay! Okay, so chapters 9 and 10 are both about David's hesed, his kindness, right? His loving kindness. In, not, in chapter 9, he demonstrated this kindness to a possible rival to the kingdom, he couldn't bring himself to be very kind to Michael, Jonathan's sister, but he could womp up the kindness for Jonathan's son. Um, 
In chapter 10, David tries again to show this hesed to another descendant of a friend, Hanun, the king of Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. We don't know exactly what Nahash had done to become buddies with David, to keep faith earlier with David, but he did something that David still appreciates at this point. So we see in chapter 10, David begin to withdraw a little from his military role. He'd always been the David has slain his tens of thousands, right? Right out there at the head. But he's withdrawing a little and kind of leaving it to Joab to run the show. And this is gonna set the stage for Bathsheba in the next chapter where a war is going on, but David's at leisure to be like looky-loo on his rooftop, right? <laughs> um, so we open chapter 10 my daughter, my youngest said to me the other day, she said, sometimes when she can't go to sleep, she lays in bed and thinks about the most embarrassing moments in her life. I said, what? <laughs> this is completely from Scott. Because Scott does that. And she said, don't you do that? I said, never. I never think about the most embarrassing. I, I have to think to think what they were. Those things bury them in oblivion, right? You don't live them over and over. But it's so alien to me, it is not my mindset. That is totally Scott, who does do that over and over. You'll hear him and I, oh, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh, think about something else. Anyways, so if the servants of David had this tendency that Lucy and Scott Dudley have, I bet you the incident in chapter 10 was one they cringed about every night. So how Hannah treated them. So let's read uh, chapter 10. Verses 1 through 5. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his stead. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. Like, so sorry, your dad, sorry. Um, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Hasn't David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? <gasps> so Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown. And then return. <laughs> um, I know. This is why they couldn't come back in the town because all the girls would giggle at them, right? Like I just did. Um, we have this expression, don't shoot the messenger for a reason, right? Hannah suspects and wants to humiliate David, but David's not there, so he's got to do it to the messengers. And by doing these actions, he ignites a war between Israel and the Ammonites to the east. You don't need your Bible to tell you that when a man gets half his beard shaved off, he looks ridiculous, right? He looks ridiculous. And I, I didn't want to put a picture up here of a guy with, with half his pants cut off, but you can probably picture that. Also ridiculous, right? There's a reason we don't like to wear those hospital gowns that leave your backside exposed, right? Because it's embarrassing, and it's like, mm, don't, don't. I'm flying in the wind here, right? So, um, so when a man has got half his beard and his backside is exposed and front side, right? It's like a dog wearing a cone of shame. You just, and Hannah isn't just disrespecting the messenger's t-shirts and sweatpants, they are wearing their official uniforms. 
In fact, the, the word they use for the, the garments here is the word for the official clothing, right? It's not their sweatpants. It's their uniform, meaning when he's cutting off their uniform, it is directly a slap in David's face. Like everything that you represent, every, and that king you represent, we slap you around, we laugh at you, we make fun of you, right? So the interesting thing about David's reaction to his representative's humiliation is that he doesn't strap on his armor and go have it out with Hannah, right? In the old days, he would have. In chapter eight, you know, whack, 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 whack. Instead, David sent out Joab and the whole army. He delegates, right? He delegates in verse seven. So we begin to see some resting on his kingly laurels, right? We begin to see some inertia setting in. Could be middle age, we don't know. And this is gonna set the stage for what happens in chapter 11. You know? In the spring of the year when kings go to war, David's lolling around on his roof, right? Okay, then comes some more boring military detail, so which we're gonna cover up with this map. Um, so I put a circle around Ammon. You can see it to the east. And um, so, and then Ammon is like, oh, shoot, we're in trouble now, right? So they decide to pay some mercenaries from some Aramean mercenaries. They're like, come help us fight off this suddenly very powerful king that we were really dumb and made angry, right? And then Joab's forces in chapter 10 get caught between these two armies, between the Arameans and the Ammonites. And he divides his forces, it's exciting military battle, and he thwarts them anyhow. And so you've got this funny contrast set up in the chapter between David, who's like, Joab, go, go do something about that, right? And Joab, who's like, ah, I am the wily warrior. I will divide my forces and still defeat these two armies, right? So one looks very active, one looks very passive. And one very interesting note I found on chapter 10, remarked on all the divisions in chapter 10. We have half beards, we have half butts, we have half armies, right? Everything is getting split. And we have kind of half attention on David's part. And so a biblical scholar, Robert Polson, he says, you know, this is also a literary device because what we're gonna see here is David's family and David's court and David's kingdom breaking down, breaking down into factions and fractions, right? Every, there's gonna be division in the family. There's gonna be all kinds of brother against brother, everything breaking down in halves, right? So. We are pointing ahead to that again. Joab wins. David takes to the field to stick the final fork in them. Yeah, they're done. And so the Ammonites and the hired Arameans, they all say, okay, okay, we will serve the kingdom of Israel. End of chapter. Okay, but that is not where I want to leave us. But it's almost where I'm going to leave us. Um, so we've heard two stories of Hesed today, right? David's kindness to Mephibosheth and David's attempted kindness to Hanan, the king of Ammon. The first recipient of kindness seems grateful and recognizes he has been graced beyond all expectations. The second recipient responds with suspicion and resentment. So if David prefigures Jesus in so many ways, how are we like the recipients of this hesed? What can we learn from these two responses? Which response do we want to have? Um, so Jesus came to us as the embodiment of God's kindness. 
For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Right? John 3.17, the, the verse that never gets painted on signs. So, and Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. Right? And Romans tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been hesitant this Easter. Everything good poured out on us, right? God's kindness poured out on us. So if, if this is good news, why do we so often respond to kindness like the Ammonites do? You know, why do we sometimes feel, feel fear or resentment or aggression? Why don't we respond more often like Mephibosheth? with gratitude and this recognition that I have been saved from death, woo and I can restore, I can eat at the king's table. I think there's a couple reasons. Um, the first reason is, is the classic, well, I haven't done anything wrong, right? There's nothing wrong with me. I didn't ask for your help. This is a very common response to what God has done for all mankind, right? I didn't ask for your help. I didn't ask you to save me, right? The Ammonites suspect David wants to undermine their security, right? And their self-image and overthrow their kingdom. And this is what some people feel when they hear this message of the gospel, right? I've come to save you from your sins. I didn't do any sins. Get out of here, right? Um, you're trying to overthrow me. Actually, he is trying to overthrow us, but for a good reason, right? To accept the good news that we are not condemned means accepting that we have actually done something worthy of condemnation. And this is the first reason, and really it's probably the most compelling out of people you know or in your own heart when you hear the good news and you feel resentful. You know that I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a good person. I, mean, I don't need this, right? And to accept provision and kindness at someone else's hands means accepting that you were unable to provide it for yourself. You know, Mephibosheth was lame in both feet, and the passage is very careful to tell us that twice, beginning and end, lame in both feet, right? Mephibosheth is never going to lead armies. He's never going to dance before the ark of the Lord. Um, he couldn't, he, he could never reclaim his family's, family's land. And sometimes we are lame in both feet, and we don't know it, or we won't admit it. Oh, you know, um, in dealing with Scott's parents, I've told you about Rita's been having increasing mobility problems. And pretty much now, if she needs to get anywhere, she kind of sits all day. But if she needs to get somewhere, she has to be wheeled in the wheelchair. So when Scott had to take him to the ER the other week, he had to convince her to get in the wheelchair and stuff. And her response is always, I can walk, right? She didn't want to be at the hospital. And she said, well, I'm just going to walk out of here. You know, and Scott thought, well, I would like to see that. It's probably good for you, right? Work the muscles, work the core. Because she can still physically walk if she would, but she won't, right? So, and so you totally understand, Rita has Alzheimer's, you know, so this is, this is her brain working. But you totally understand what Jesus meant when he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? If you don't think anything's wrong with you, the gospel is not good news. I can walk by myself then you're not going to want somebody to come up and say, take up your mat and walk. You know, I'm, I'm going to heal you. You don't want anything. I can walk. Get away from me. Right? We don't want to be that person. It's Holy Week. God is showering his loving kindness on us. He's saying, hey, guess what? I didn't come to judge and to tell you how horrible you are as a person. 
If you're like Lucy and Scott, you already lay in bed and think about horrible things in your life. He's like, I didn't come to grind those into you. I came to save you. And there is no condemnation in my eyes, in God the Father's eyes, because I love you. I came to shower kindness on you. So we want to respond like Methuselah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for all you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, in the places in our lives where we have fallen down and we are lame in both feet and we have messed up, Lord, that you did not come to remind us of the ways we messed up. You came to say, you know what? I died for you. I forgive you. Never mind about that. Come sit at my table. Come be restored as an heir to the kingdom of God. Come be restored to the Father's company and kindness. Everything that you could not do for yourself, I just give it to you because I love you. Lord, help us respond as Mephibosheth did. Help us respond with gratitude and, and just, yeah, thankfulness, enjoyment. Let us enjoy being at your table this week. And help us not to be resentful or defensive, Lord, to be told that we need a Savior, Lord. In our most honest moments, we know we need somebody to help us when we can't help ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.